Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and be turning to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Last week, we began to look at the description of the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Remember, it came out of heaven prepared by Jesus. And the first thing we did was look at the outside. The angel was taking John around and revealing to him about the holy city. And he describes, first of all, the outside and what it looked like, how large it was, 1,500 miles in each direction. That is, that is both depth, I mean, as far as length and width, but also height, an unbelievable city. It's, it's made for everyone. It's there. It has a, a, a wall around it that's 216 feet high, which it has gates of pearl, which lets us know that it's a secure place, and we can make sure that we, uh, we don't have any fear there, don't have to worry about anything. It describes the 12 stones, those beautiful stones that were the foundation of that wall that lets us know that it's permanent, and it's built upon a solid rock, and Jesus is the builder, and we'll never have to worry about it. It's for all eternity. Then he moves inside. And when he moves inside, he begins to describe that there are streets of gold, transparent gold as they walk on that. He goes on and says that there is no temple there, but we'll worship God. He goes on and says that there is no sun or moon there, for God will illumine this city. God will bring forth the light of this city. Then we see that the nations will bring their glory in there. So all of these things are happening in the description. Well, the angel continues that tour of the great city, the new Jerusalem for John, and he begins to describe other things. What do you describe beyond what he described? Well, it lets us know that God is a God of beauty and God is a God of nature. Uh, you know, even in this old fallen world, isn't this a beautiful world? I mean, you can go to some magnificent places that are just unbelievable. Whether you like the mountains or whether you like the ocean or whether you like the rivers or wherever you might, you just travel around and God, even in this fallen state we're in, God made a beautiful, beautiful world and he loves nature. He loves creation. So God has that in his holy city as well. So listen to what it says as we continue the tour in chapter 22, verse 1. And he, talking about the angel, showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God. And of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the nation were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of a light, of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed, blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Let's stop there today. As he begins to look into this holy city, it's like God takes him 
into a wonderful garden, a beautiful garden. It's, it's almost like God is saying that he is restoring and returning and enlarging the Garden of Eden. You remember about the Garden of Eden? That's what God created. That's where man first was. That was where the world was perfect. And it was a beautiful, glorious, wonderful place. And that glorious place is where they dwelt and where they lived. And, and, and all the magnificent beauty that God could possibly bring about was in that place. Well, it's like God is returning to that Garden of Eden and restoring that here in the New Jerusalem. And he describes it. Some different parts there. He says, first of all, he showed me a river of the water of life. He showed him a river of the water of life. Now, in the, in the Garden of Eden, it says, if you go back and read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and I challenge you to do that because it tells you so much in comparison to what this says. It says that there was a river in the Garden of Eden, and it actually divided up into four rivers. Do you remember that? But the, the headwaters were one river. That one river that would have been a perfect river that's running through that Garden of Eden. Well, God says that he is going to bring forth this river that is going to run. And this river has a name. It is the river of the water of life. What does it say about it? It says, it is clear as crystal. There's nothing in it that's wrong. There's nothing in it that would be sinful. There's nothing in it that would be bad. There's nothing that would mar its beauty. It is clear as crystal. And it tells you this, it comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Do you know where the headwaters are for this, for this river of life? They're at the throne of God and of the Lamb. See, issuing forth from the throne of God is going to be this river of life that is running throughout this, this glorious city for people to enjoy, for people to participate. It is clear, it is crystal clear, it is beautiful. That's why it's called the river of life. And where does it run? Listen to what it says. And it runs right down the middle of its street. In other words, it's, it's, walk, it's, it's drive right down the middle of where on each side of it would be part of the street. Right down the middle of the street is that river of life. Now, a number of things that tells us about it, and it relates us back to some of the things that Jesus taught us. You remember Jesus taught a lot about the living water. You remember that? He talked a lot about living water. Matter of fact, it might be helpful. Hold your hand here a minute, and let's go back to John's gospel. John, who wrote this gospel, is also the one who wrote the Revelation. And he heard Jesus teaching about something called the living water. Listen to what he records there in chapter 4 of John. And it's whenever he records what Jesus had said to the woman at the well. What did he say at the woman at the well? He says this, verse number 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. Jesus spoke about the living life giving water. He goes on. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. He spoke about the living water, the living water. Turn over to John chapter 8. Jesus made another statement about the living water. That's what he says in John 8. I'm sorry. It's in John 7. John 7, verse 38. He who believes in me, 
as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus said that there's living water available right here and right now. Living water that will be given to us where we'll thirst no more. Living water whereby that from our innermost being, this living water will keep flowing. This inner, inner uh, beauty, this inner life, this inner change that God has given to us is called the living water. And do you know where it starts from? Do you know where it is issued from? What did it say? We just read in the, about the New Jerusalem. The living water starts and comes from where? The throne of God. The throne of God. You've heard it said that, that as a Christian, you get to enjoy a little bit of heaven here. You get to enjoy a little. Do you know one part of heaven you get to enjoy? You get an opportunity to partake of the living water of God flowing through your heart and your life right now. Now, that's nothing compared to what it's going to be like when we get to the new Jerusalem. Because it's going to be something we're going to physically see. It's something we're going to enjoy. It's something we're going to understand where it comes from. We're going to realize all of those things are true, and it's going to be something that we'll, we'll enjoy in full measure. But hold on a second. Right here and right now, you and I have the opportunity of partaking of the living water of God. You know what else it says in the, in the Revelation here? It tells us something about who it is that gets to partake of the living water. It says it in verse 17. Look at there in chapter 22. And the Spirit and the bride said, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The one who's thirsty, we talked about that before, to long and desire, you have the opportunity of taking the water of life without cost. You know how you're going to get to heaven one day? You know how you're going to enjoy the new Jerusalem? Because there was a need in your life, a thirsting in your soul, and you realized you needed the water of life, and you asked, and Jesus said, here, it's for you. And whenever you do that, by believing in Christ, you'll have an opportunity to partake of the living water, the river of the water of life for the rest of your life. Whenever it says that it, it, is, it goes right down the street, what does that tell us about going down the street? It's the idea that, that the river of life and that living water is a part of everything we do. Where do you live life? On the street. Where do you live life? On, on the journey. And this water of life is always in the New Jerusalem going to be available to us to keep us filled and satisfied all through that journey of life. Jesus said it to the woman at the well. He who partakes of this water will never thirst again. You'll never thirst again. It's, it's a point of satisfaction and abundance, a picture of abundance. So there in this new Jerusalem is this water of life flowing down that, in the middle of that street. But look what else it says there in verse 2. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, Yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Not only is there a river that's flowing, it says also there's a tree there. You've heard of that tree, haven't you? It's called the tree of life. Where, where did we first hear of the tree of life? Back in the Garden of Eden, right? Back in the Garden of Eden. And God gave to, the, to Adam and Eve the right to eat of the tree of life. Until what? Until they sinned, until they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then what did God do? God banished them from the Garden of Eden. He, he put cherubim there to protect the entrance of the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve from partaking of the tree of life. 
Because if they partook of the tree of life, they would forever live in a state of sin. They would forever live in that existence that they had fallen into because of sin. And God did not want them to eternally exist in sin. But rather, he wanted them to only live as they would be made righteous and whole. So he, so he banned them from that. And it tells us this. He took the tree of life out of the garden. He took the tree of life out of the garden. And, and you don't hear much about the tree of life until you come here to this revelation. And then we found out early in the book of the Revelation that it says that, that those who believe will have the opportunity of, of partaking of the tree of life that is in paradise. And now we find out that not only is the tree of life in paradise, but whenever there is this new Jerusalem that Jesus is making, there, right by the river of life, there is the tree of life. That tree of life. And, and notice what it says about the tree of life. It says, it's on either side of the river. Now, that's pretty confusing, isn't it? How does a tree get on both sides of the river? Well, there are different interpretations of that. Some people think there may be multitudes or multiple trees of life that are on both sides of the river. Or the fact that the tree is so large that, that the, it hangs over and, and the fruit hangs over from both sides, uh, on both sides of the river on the street. So that no matter where you are, you have the opportunity to participate. Which tells us this, that everybody, it is free to everybody and available to everybody to partake. No matter which side of the street you're on, you get that? <laughs> no matter which side of the railroad track you're on, or no matter which side of the river of life you're on, it's available to everybody to partake of that tree of life. So its availability is for everyone. There's not a, a special few who will get to partake of the tree of life. Everyone will be able to partake of the tree of life. It's available. But not only that, look what it says in verse 2. It's on either side of the river, and it says it's bearing 12 kinds of fruit. 12 kinds of fruit. What's that got to do with? That's got to do with variety. It's got to do with variety. It's got to do with abundance, an aspect of abundance. You remember when God took the children of Israel out of, in the Exodus, out of Egypt, and put them out in the wilderness for a while? What did he feed them? What did he feed them? Manna. Thank you for those four people who remember that. Uh, manna. Fed a manna. And, and they stayed out there for 40 years eating what? Manna. manna. And they got sick of what? Manna. They got tired. The only thing, manna in the morning, manna in the daytime, manna at night. That's what you got. And they complained about it because what they wanted, they, they said, we, we want something more than manna. Well, the, God didn't intend for them to be in the wilderness. He intended them to be where? In the promised land. And what was the promised land? It was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. And honey is a picture of the abundance of life. Now, in the promised land, they didn't just have milk and honey. They had the abundance of everything. Go and read what they found in that land. You remember they carried the grapes back, just a cluster of grapes they had to carry on a pole because it was so great. That's more than just milk and honey. It is a land of abundance. It's a land of variety. It's the, it's the spices of life. And what this says about the tree of life is it has 12 varieties of fruit. You are talking about a place of abundance that even out of one tree, out of one tree comes 12 different varieties, 12 different aspects of abundance. You don't have to plant 12 trees to get it. Out of one tree comes all that abundance, all that variety that God has. Not only that, though, look what else it says. And it yields its fruit every month. It's not just the variety, it's the abundance of availability. (laughs) 
I mean, how, how many times does your tree bear? One time a year, doesn't it? You can plant that tree, whether it's a fruit tree, whether it's a pecan tree, whatever it is, you can plant that tree. It may take you years before it ever starts bearing fruit. If it does bear fruit, you can wait the whole year to get one variety of fruit that one time. How would you like to have one that every month it bore fruit and it was always a different fruit? That tree would be worth something. You could make money off of that tree, couldn't you? You can't buy it, but you can partake of it. You can't buy it, but you can partake of it because that is the tree of life. It's right here. It says in that new Jerusalem. Notice what else it says. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It does, that's not really talking about what what's, it's going to do in, in the uh, eternal kingdom. It tells you about a little bit about the tree of life as it related to origin, when it was originally in the garden. You know what the purpose of the tree of life was? You partook of the tree of life and the leaves of that tree made you well. It was therapeutic. And the reason that somebody would partake of it and live forever is if they sick or they needed something, they would partake of that and it would make them well. And that's what it intended to do. That's what it was intended to do. That's how you would have lived forever. It was therapeutic. But hold on a second. You don't have to worry about that in glory. Amen. Because Why? There is no death. There is no sickness. He's already told us. No death, no sickness, no need for healing. There is no need for healing. He just lets us know what it was about and how he originally made it. There in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. But who is it that gets to partake of this tree of life? Notice what it says in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. And may enter by the gates into the city. Those who have washed their robes. And how are your robes washed? How are you made clean? You're not clean by a laundry. You're not clean by a washing machine. You're not clean by the soap or a shower. The only way to clean a person from their sin is through the shed blood of the perfect Lamb of God. And whenever your robes were made clean, you are now having the right and the privilege To live in this holy city and to enjoy, listen, and to enjoy forever partaking of that glorious tree of life. So there's the river of life. And beside the river of life, there is the tree of life. But then there are some exclusions. Blessings can be exclusions. Amen. Listen to the exclusions. Verse 3. And there shall no longer be any curse. You ought to underline that five times if you have room. (laughs) Put four stars by it. That is great news. There shall no longer be any curse. What is that talking about? Well, if you go back to the book of Genesis, it tells us all about, why is the book of Genesis so important? Because it tells us everything from the beginning to the end. It's the building block of why we have the revelation. It's the building block of everything else we're doing. So there in in Genesis, in chapter 1 and 2, it tells us it's about this glorious world that God made. And then comes chapter 3. In chapter 3, it's when Adam and Eve sinned. They partook of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And when they sinned against God, it says in chapter 3, go back and read it. We don't have time now. It says in chapter 3, That a curse came into the world. A curse came upon the land. A curse came upon the animal kingdom. 
a curse came upon the atmosphere and a curse came upon man. The curse came. How did the curse come? Because man sinned. And we have been living under that curse for the rest of our existence. Do you know how bad it was? In chapter 3, the curse happened. In chapter 4, the first murder took place. One brother killed another. By the time you get over to Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, you find out that the world is so wicked that God destroys the world by flood. I mean, you don't all have to cover too many chapters, and that's what the curse did. And when God made the world different and new in the fact of the flood, even though it were righteous men who came out of that boat, sin still entered in, and the curse has continued. And you don't have to do much reading. You don't have to watch much news. You don't have to get on your computer very often to find out that we live in a world that is cursed. And that curse will continue until God makes all things new. But bless God, when this comes about and when the new Jerusalem comes and we get to enjoy it, there is no more curse. That curse has been taken care of. It's been paid in full. It's been wiped out totally. And there is no more curse. And why is it, why is it there's no more curse? Because of what happens in the New Jerusalem. Look what it says there in verse 3. Don't miss it. And there shall no longer be any curse. Listen. And the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. Do you know why there's no curse here? It's because the Lord God and the Lamb are in charge. They're in rulership. They reign over it. They've taken charge over it. They're, they're totally the authorities in all things. That's what the world was supposed to be whenever God created it. Man was supposed to have dominion over the world, but man was submissive to God. Therefore, God is ultimately in charge. But when man chose not to be submissive to God and chose to give the dominion over to the enemy, then at that point in time, Satan became the God of this world. And not until this point in time do we see the restoration where the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb are on this earth and they are now in charge. And where they are in charge, when they have redeemed it, when they have reclaimed it, when they have reflected upon it, there is no more curse. For they are in charge. Wow. I love that. I love that. Listen, Listen to what else it says. There's another exclusion. And there shall no longer be any night. Here's an exclusion. The darkness and night's going away. And they shall not have need of a lamp, of a a light of a lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because God shall illumine them. There'll be no more night. You don't have to worry about not being able to see. There'll never be a time when you cannot see. For God will illumine his world, and for you to see, you have to have light. But But not only that... The deeds of darkness will go away. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting how much sin happens in darkness? When my kids were growing up, we had a curfew, and I always told them, I said, nothing good happens after midnight. I mean, there's just nothing good that happens. So if it doesn't happen after that, you need to be in for the bad stuff's happening. Amen? 
Because there's something about darkness that brings about evil. And darkness cloaks the fact of the activities. But you won't have a place to hide and nobody else can hide. And all those activities can't be carried on because there's going to be no more darkness because God illumines this new city. Now, I want to give you something interesting to study. Y'all like to study stuff? I'm going to get you something, give you your curiosity. I want you to go back to the book of Genesis and I want you to see what God did. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that whenever, in, in verse 2, it says that whenever, that the world was formless and it was dark. You remember him saying that? All right. Then he goes and it says in the next few verses, and it says, And God made the light. And he divided the light between day and evening or night. Remember that? Just keep on reading. You go down a couple more days, and when you get to a couple more days, it says that God created the sun and the moon and the stars. You got that? Read it. I want you to read it, okay? He created the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, why is that interesting? Because God created light before he created the sun, the moon, and the stars, which are our luminaries, which give us our light. When God first created the world, he was the light. He was the light. He was the light, and he still allowed darkness. Then he creates the sun and moon, the luminaries that give us light at night in the midst of darkness, or give us the light of the day. But whenever he comes, listen, when he comes to the new Jerusalem, he is going to return to the fact that he is what illuminates. He is the illuminator of the new Jerusalem. He is the light. Not a sun and moon. Remember, it says we don't have a need for the sun and moon anymore. But he's going to be the light. But now he is the light and there is no darkness. He is the light always and there will be no darkness anymore. You read that, okay? Yes, Brother Matt, we'll read that. I want you to see it. It's important. Talks about, helps you understand this revelation about when it says that God is the illuminator of his new world. God is the illuminator. All right. Very quickly, I want to answer some questions for you. You ever wonder, what do we do in heaven or what do we do on the new earth? You ever wonder about that? What do we do? I mean, what's your picture? I hope your picture is not that you just set up on some cloud somewhere with a crown on your head. And you're sitting there waiting for eternity to pass. It's not going to help you. Eternity doesn't pass. <laughs> you're going to be on that cloud a long time. I hope, you get, you know, I hope your mind is beyond that. I hope it's not like I was when I was a little child. I was kind of, I had a real hard time being still. I mean, like, I'd rather be playing ball than sitting in church. I know that doesn't sound very spiritual. But I, I, when I was a child, I just liked to play, you know. I loved to play. And I remember the preacher got up there and the preacher said, uh, Whenever we get to heaven... We're going to worship for all eternity. Well, for me, worship was sitting in church. And I thought, we're going to sit in church for all eternity? We're going to hear singing and preaching for all eternity? Doesn't sound like a real appetizing heaven to me. What do we do when we get to heaven? Well, it tells us here. One thing is we will worship. But that doesn't mean you're going to sit in church, listen to the preacher all the time. Remember, preaching, preachers are going to be out of business. Did you know that? I mean, whenever I, I depart with this, I, I'll be out of business. I don't know what I'm going to do up there, but I'm not going to be preaching. Okay? 
Preaching is not going to be happening. Worship is going to take place, but it's not worship just at sitting. You're supposed to be worshiping as you walk, amen? So the worship of God is going to happen. We know this is going to happen, but, but I want you to know something else is going to happen there. I want you to get that in your mind and everything because it's going to help you in regard to that. So I want you, it's right here in verse 3. Very last phrase. And his bondservants shall serve him. You know what you're going to be doing in the new Jerusalem? You're going to be serving God. You're going to be, you're going to be serving God. There's going to be something for you to do. There's, there's a work for you to accomplish. A work for me to accomplish. Man, I thought when I got to heaven, there wasn't no more work. No, there's work. Go back to the Genesis again. Remember this, that when God gave Adam and Eve the responsibility in the garden... He gave them responsibility to cultivate and to oversee and have dominion over the land. That was before the fall. Work is not a result of the fall. Hard work is. Unfruitful work is. But work's not. He wants us to serve. But listen. In a glorified state, in a redeemed state, in a wonderful city called Jerusalem, you're going to love to work. And you're going to love to serve. That's going to be a fulfillment of your life, to work and to serve. Something else, though, we're going to do. This might be more interesting to some of you. Look at verse 5, very last phrase. And they shall reign forever and ever. You're not just going to worship and work. You're going to have an opportunity to reign. You're going to be in charge of something. God's going to give you a responsibility to oversee something. I don't know if you're overseeing the angels or whatever you're going to get to oversee, but you're going to get to oversee because he said that you will reign with me. And you're going to have the opportunity to reign in that new Jerusalem. But there's something else. And that is what? That you're going to have the opportunity to fellowship. I want you to see that. There in verse number four. Listen. And they shall see his face. They shall see his face. That's talking about the face of God. That's talking about the face of God. That's talking about fellowship with God. See, in this world, nobody could ever look on the face of God. Moses couldn't look on the face of God. Moses, God told Moses, if you saw my face, you'd die. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll go by you and then I'll put my hand and when I go by, you can see my back and you'll live. But if you see my face, you will die. And the Jews were always fearful of seeing God or or being exposed to God because they knew that they would die. But whenever you get to go to the New Jerusalem, you're going to get to see his face. And that's a a picture of fellowship. You're going to be able to look across the table, in a sense, to be able to look at the face of God and to be able to fellowship with the Holy God. Now, why and how could that happen? Because he's going to make you holy. You're going to be acceptable at that point in time. You're going to be okay at that time. You're going to be in a glorified body at that time. And you are going to fellowship with God. And as you fellowship with God, you're going to fellowship with others. I have people all the time say, Brother Mike, my loved one died and I'm concerned. I don't know. Are we going to know each other in heaven? Absolutely we're going to know each other in heaven. The most important thing to God is relationships. That's why he came and died on the cross. He died on the cross so that you could have a relationship with him and so that he would make all your relationships right. He, he, he's about people. 
And therefore, relationships are important and fellowship is sweet. And when you get to heaven, you're going to know your loved ones and you're going to know who they are and you're going to fellowship with them and you'll never, ever have to say goodbye. Amen? So you're going to worship, you're going to work, you're going to reign, and you're going to fellowship with God, and you're going to fellowship with others. Let me show you a sweet thing, though, just to add on, make you feel good today. You want to feel good today? Here's a good thing. All right. Here's something. Look at verse 4. And they shall see his face. Here it is. And his name shall be on their foreheads. Did you know that God is going to write his name on your forehead? Now, that is special. That is special. What that means is God claims you. He claims you. And that you are worthy to be claimed by Almighty God. Let me give you a really quick illustration. I am terrible at art. I was horrible at art when we were in school. But our teachers always wanted us to do these art contests. Bless their hearts. <laughs> you know, they do these art contests and then they want to hang them all on the wall. I can't even draw a stick man straight. But they want us to do it. So I do art and all these other little girls. And I do all this beautiful art and stuff like that. Mine's a stick man that's crooked. And want to put it on the, on the wall. In the hall. And want to put your name on it. I put mine on the back of the page. I did not want any credit for that. See, you only want to put your name on that which you're proud of. Which you're proud of. Which you want to put on display. Think about this. God's proud of you and wants to put you on display. He puts his name on you. That's pretty significant. Pretty significant. That God thinks enough of you, he puts his name on you. Final things. Down here in verse 6 and 7. The angel said to him, these are faithful and true words. The Lord, the God of the spirits of prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservant the things which shall shortly take place. You know what he says? This authenticates the revelation. This is the angel giving an announcement to John the revelator and saying, listen, these are true words of God. These are faithful and true words of God. These come from the spirit of the prophet in the same way that the prophets of old wrote those words of God. So these words of God have been written. They are faithful. They are true. They are to be lived. And then he goes in verse 7. And behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Some people try to push the revelation aside. Oh, that's not important. Oh, that's not needed. Listen, it is just as much prophecy and just as true and faithful as any other word in this book. And blessed is the one who heeds it, who lives it, who does it. How about you? I'm excited about the new Jerusalem. I'm excited about getting to partake of the water of life. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about seeing that tree of life that has variety and has fruit every month. And, and I get a chance to be a part. I'm, I'm especially thankful there's going to be no curse there and no darkness there. I'm thankful we're going to have something to do there and a purpose there. I'm thankful all that. But most of all, I'm thankful that Jesus loves me enough. He'll put his name on me. Can you say that about yourself? Do you know that he has his name written on you? Have you done that? If not, you need to do that today. You need to give your heart to Christ today so that you'll know that you'll enjoy 
that glorious, glorious new Jerusalem. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon dash series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.